welcome everybody here. Uh, my name is uh, Richard Leonard. Uh, I'm here as the convener of the Public Audit Committee to um, uh, to chair this event, which is why I'm surrounded by committee clerks to make sure I uh, don't stray into any party politics. Um, the, um, the Futures Forum um, uh, is the Scottish Parliament's uh, futures think tank, uh, which exists to look at some of the big trends and issues shaping our lives and shaping society. Uh, and it's an it's a initiative which tries to get uh, uh, members of Parliament, but also people that work in the Parliament, people that advise uh, MSPs and so on, to, um, uh, to look at some of those big issues. And uh, today um, we are uh, looking at the increasing use of artificial intelligence uh, and its implications uh, for Parliament. To get started, um, I, I want to... Um, uh, really go straight to our speakers, I think. Uh, part of today's discussion is about some of the nuts and bolts of artificial intelligence, but I think what we want to dwell on uh, are the, the ethical implications of it and some of the wider societal issues uh, which are, which are uh, raised by um, artificial intelligence. I'm pleased that we're joined uh, by uh, two eminent professors from the University of Edinburgh. Um, uh, to my uh, right is uh, Shannon Valor, who's uh, the Chair in the Ethics of Data and AI at uh, the Edinburgh Futures Institute at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, Pro Professor Valor's research explores how new technologies, especially AI, reshape uh, human moral character, habits and practices. To my left is uh, Professor Ram Ramuthi, who's the chair of uh, Robot Learning and Autonomy at um, uh, Edinburgh University. And I'm going to um, ask uh, Ram to start us off by give us, giving us an introduction to AI, its uh, practical uh, applications and um, its current uses and potential future developments, uh, especially in the context of Scotland. So Ram, over to you. Thank you. Uh... Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure to be inside this lovely building. Uh, I've been asked to uh, say a little bit about AI in Scotland. And, and I should begin by saying that we have a, a really distinguished history in this city uh, in the field of AI. As we like to say in our department, we had a department of AI before we even had computers or anybody had computers. This goes way back to those days. Uh, but really, I'm not going to dwell on the uh, ancient past. I'm going to really talk about what's going on now and uh, what we should do about the future. And the way I'm going to do it is, uh, I'll, I'll first give you a little bit of an introduction to what is AI. And I'll do this uh, through the use of a few examples that I've been personally involved with. And then I'll try to raise questions from that that will surely be uh, you know, questions that will come up for you all in government. Uh, so to, uh, to to start with, I, I'm a roboticist, so I work in the area of robotics and the application of machine learning and, and various computational technologies in, in autonomous systems. Uh, I've been involved in a number of different projects. Uh, you might have heard about the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics, which is uh, one of the leading robotics research facilities in Europe uh, and, and worldwide. I, I, was a co uh, I was a founding member of, uh, of that consortium. And I've been involved in a number of different uh, initiatives around that uh, for the past 15 years in the University of Edinburgh. Now, in terms of what, what is AI and, and, and how you will find it uh, in your daily lives, um, 
AI is really a collection of computational methods, uh, tools, if you like, that find their way into making uh, various processes automated. Uh, intelligent is the word that many people use, but in the way that you will experience it in your lives, it'll be about automation of one kind or the other. And the other word we like to talk about is autonomy, which is when the the machine starts to take over some of the decision-making capabilities that previously rested with the human participant. So some examples that you see on this slide, uh, we increasingly see the use of computer vision methods. Uh, uh, this ranges from, uh, you know, if you if you have an iPhone or an Android device, uh, everybody's taking pictures, the pictures are getting processed, you know, various things are happening to figure out, uh, you know, what can we say from these images. One example of uh, a, a social use of this is in healthcare and social care, where people are beginning to use automated processing of images to figure out things like, what is your health state? What is your mood? What can we say about what kind of care you should uh, receive. Another example, uh, which has to do with what we call data mining, which is the automated processing of large corpora of data that are being constantly collected, you know, ranging from your bank account data to your spending patterns and so on, uh, which then feeds into automated decisions around, for instance, mortgage applications. Um, and, and these kind of trends are gradual. So in the beginning, all, all you see is a little bit of summarization of data and, and slowly you will see as the technology picks up that the decision is fully automatic. Uh, another very exciting application is uh, natural language processing where, you know, things we are doing right now, you know, my speech, your speech, uh, it can be analyzed, it can be generated, it can be synthesized in new ways and that lends itself to business process automation, chatbots and, and all of those kinds of things. So there's a very wide spectrum of what we mean by AI. And these are all AI technologies. A lot of my own work has been on the autonomy end of the spectrum. Uh, so because I work in robotics and autonomous systems, we've been interested in applying machine learning to make uh, physical devices, robots typically, uh, more capable. So one, one example that I've uh, taken from my lab is a project in which we've been working with surgeons and medical professionals and trying to use AI technologies to make robots better at learning from experts. Uh, so in, in the technical jargon, we call it learning from demonstration. So a, an expert can come in and say, this is my skill, and the skill could be, this is how I perform an ultrasound scan, or, or in one instance, this is how I actually perform certain surgical tasks. And, and from that, the robot learns, and then it, it starts to do that task for itself. And that kind of autonomy is what uh, then leads to improved uh, you know, robot surgery and, and various such devices. And, and we've been quite heavily involved in this in the Erindra Center for Robotics. Another example, which is a very practical example that uh, I've been pleased to be involved in, uh, is autonomous vehicles. Uh, everybody's heard about the coming of autonomous vehicles, but it's been a slow, long journey. I've been involved in a startup company called Five AI, which is based in a number of places in the UK, including an office in Edinburgh that, uh, that's around my group. Uh, and in this company, we've been looking at, um, you know, building the technology stack towards deploying uh, autonomous uh, driving capability on the roads. So by autonomous driving, we literally mean whatever it is that you do if you drive is going to be taken over by a machine so that you can sit back. But 
that is a very kind of simplistic description of what the stack is. In fact, the stack is built in many steps. The lowest step is, you know, automated parking or, or, or just kind of, you know, braking systems. And then the next level up would be, can you stick to the lane? And then the next level up is, can you get through a traffic jam? So, so in fact, there's a gradation of this technology that's being built. But to give you a flavor of what we mean by autonomous driving, here's an example of a self-driving car. It's a car like any other, with the exception that that person's not actually holding on to the steering wheel. Now, the, the terms of how we do this testing is that he can take over in a, in a matter of seconds if anything happens, but, but in fact, the car is driving itself. This is taken from a, from a field trial that we conducted in, in London, uh, and we've done it in a number of different uh, parts of the country. Uh, the AI here is what's happening under the hood. What you see outside is just, you know, a human skill that has been replicated. Uh, so what then uh, are the governance, regulation kind of uh, and other challenges that arise from this? So as systems have become more automated and as we have more autonomous systems, we see uh, various kinds of issues prop, uh, th th that come up. For instance, previously it used to be the case that when a certification agency looked at a device, they just looked at the device in itself. Whereas now we see uh, situations where the device impacts a lot more people than uh, the manufacturer or the user of the device. So in fact, in the example of the autonomous vehicle, what happens to people who just happen to be on the road? How do they come into the loop and actually speak to the process? Uh, so so we have issues like that. We also have uh, a very salient issue that arises from the technical uh, sphere, but then that has impacts all over, which is that uh, historically devices have been uh, uh, designed through a process uh, of you know, uh, an expert coming up with specifications, discussing it in great detail with somebody, and then the specification actually get implemented in a device. And so the road rules are an example. You have a lot of discussion about the road rules, and then only a small part of it is actually implemented in a device and then we know how to certify this. Increasingly with data-driven technologies, we have the possibility that the device just learns for itself from data that isn't fully kind of understood by the human experts. And then you have this autonomous capability that's going to be deployed in some capacity, making decisions, you know, doing things for you. And the certification bodies are actually struggling with where in this process should we intervene? How should we intervene? And, and how exactly should we set guidelines? And so this begins as a technical problem, but as you can imagine, this then turns into uh, you know, a governance challenge of a broader kind. Now, building on all of this, uh, all, all of the technologies I'm talking about are being developed in in you know uh, in a landscape that's constantly evolving and very rapidly moving so one example that that's very striking for me is that if we look at the adoption of telehealth technologies you know 2 years ago just before covid uh, people knew about it, but it wasn't being used anywhere near as much as it is being used now. And what has changed is simply the fact that everybody was forced to use uh, some of these technologies for various means. And that just changed the mindset. And within a matter of two to three years, we have uh, you know a significant portion of the medical community saying, yeah, I can use this technology and, and patients as well, you know, jumping into it. So once trends like this uh, begin, it becomes very hard to then pull it back. So then, uh, you know, the regulatory bodies and the certification bodies have to jump in very quickly to keep up. 
Another trend we are seeing is that with the emergence of new technologies, uh, so here I've given two examples. Uh, perhaps the most interesting one for me is uh, is the one about the American infrastructure bill, where people started to discuss in a very excited way that you know it might be possible to put in sensors, uh, you know, on on cyclists, pedestrians, and connected cars, and so on, and this might solve many of the technical challenges. This all came from the technical side. But of course, it got turned into a social question, which is, you know, when in this process did the pedestrian ever agree or get involved in this? Because a pedestrian is just a pedestrian. They've just been walking around. Why do they have to now have devices? And, and you know, if the only way that the car can be safe is if they have a device, now you've kind of changed the dynamic. And these are questions that are coming up because of the way that the technology is evolving. Uh, and likewise, we have similar questions, you know, deep in, in the technical spheres where uh, with the increasing use of AI in medicine and diagnostics, there are questions about the balance of decision making between the human expert and the automated machine and how we should deal with that. So in response to this, there's, there are many, many initiatives worldwide. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in looking at how do we improve testing processes, verification processes, certification pipelines, and, and everybody from, uh, you know, European and American governmental agencies, all, uh, you know, all, all the way down to kind of industrial bodies, everybody's looking at this. And so I want to end my presentation by telling you about an initiative that that we are part of, both uh, Professor Valla and me are, uh, uh, you know, part of an initiative called the Trustworthy Autonomous Systems Program, uh, which is a 33 million pound uh, investment from UKRI, which is our UK national science funding body. And so this program includes uh, in a, a hub and, and several nodes and includes uh, universities from across the country. And I'm pleased to say that uh, Edinburgh universities, both the University of Edinburgh and Harriet Watt have a significant significant involvement in this. Each of us leads one of these nodes. And in this program, we are looking at all of the questions that I've mentioned, uh, and we are trying to bring together a multidisciplinary group of experts ranging from legal, social, and ethical scholars to machine learning specialists and also industrial partners who have a stake in these applications I've been talking about uh, to try to explore what are the issues, uh, how can we change the software engineering and development paradigms, and then how can we uh, influence uh, not just these technical actors, but also the larger conversation in society around uh, ethics, accountability, and so on, which my colleague, Professor Valla, will say more about. Ram, thank, thank you very much indeed. And I am now seamlessly going on to um, to invite Shannon Valla, Professor Shannon Valla, to talk to us a bit more about the ethical dimension to this and the wider governance implications of it. Shannon. Fantastic, thank you. Yeah, so uh, my talk is just going to build uh, right on top of where uh, Ram left off. Uh, to give you first a sense of the the kind of vast scope of AI applications that are developing in the public sector in particular. Um, and I'm going to put this uh, a couple of slides up. There's going to be a lot of text on the first few, but that's partly a, a intentional to sort of shock you into realizing really how much there is that's going on. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about some emerging use cases for AI in the public sector. So here's the first slide, I warned you. Um, and, and what I want you to see is just if we look at uh, the domains of policing, 
the judicial systems, healthcare, social care, education. There's already a vast array of applications being developed for AI. Um, I'll say AI with a with an asterisk here. Uh, there's debates about what kinds of algorithmic decision support systems actually deserve the label of AI. Um, but that isn't, I think, the salient issue that uh, that I would advise you to focus on, um, because even systems that aren't technically AI in the robust sense um, that are that aren't involving, for example, advanced machine learning techniques uh, can still be deployed in ways that present substantial accountability and governance issues. Uh, so. Take just a, let your eye just fly over some of these things, right? From crime prediction and criminal profiling in the pol policing domain uh, to uh, being able to uh, predict in social care settings uh, whether people are being uh, um, compliant with medication regimes or uh, practicing healthy living patterns in education, uh, looking at what students in the classroom are actually watching, where their eyes are going, how they're responding to things, analyzing their emotional states. Uh, and again, ask yourself, I said worldwide, do you know which of these are actually being deployed in the UK or in Scotland, right? Not all of them are. In immigration, in public welfare, in national security and defense, in transportation and infrastructure, uh, you have yet another wave of new applications that are constantly coming online and being deployed uh, by cities, uh, by uh, national governance, uh, by um, uh, by corporations, certainly. Uh, but I've focused here on the public sector because those raise some of the most profound accountability issues that we have to confront. And some of the challenges that I'll highlight earlier or later rather. Uh, one of the things I want to ask now uh, is, do you actually know which of these use cases that I put on those slides are even scientifically legitimate? Bracket the governance challenges, bracket the ethical issues. Not all of those applications actually have a consensus among the AI research community that they're robust and, and safe and legitimate even on scientific grounds. And yet many of those tools are already being deployed by governments in ways that are impacting their citizens. I'll give you just one example. I mentioned uh, sentiment analysis or emotion recognition in classrooms. Uh, this is uh, being deployed already in China, but that's not the only place that's looking at it. And in fact, we already see companies like Proctorio that have been challenged for trying to uh, develop these tools uh, so that people can monitor uh, the states of students in the classroom. Microsoft yesterday announced that they were actually going to be retiring the emotion recognition capabilities in their facial recognition uh, commercial software. And they announced that on the basis that this technology was not scientifically or ethically robust enough for them to be selling. And so they're going to basically walk this product back. I can tell you that there are lots of government agencies that won't be aware that Microsoft has done this, that won't know why Microsoft did it, and that will still be getting pitches from third-party software vendors who aren't being so thoughtful and careful about this, who are telling them that they can use these sentiment analysis tools in all kinds of public sector environments that 
involve vulnerable citizens often who are already subject to uh, particular risks from modes of surveillance or monitoring uh, that can impose upon them in ways that are biased. And there's just not a lot of knowledge of these risks. So I, I want you to sort of ask which of Scotland's public agencies are adequately resourced to deploy these kinds of tools safely and reliably. Um, do you know which of these applications have worked well in other jurisdictions and which ones have worked poorly? Do you know which of these present currently unmanageable ethical risks? Do you know what those risks are? Do you know who's endangered by them and what their path of redress might be? And for the manageable ethical risks, because most of these present some ethical risks and some can be managed, what's required in order to do that? I'm asking these questions rhetorically because in my experience, no matter where I am, not everyone knows the answers to these questions. They're hard to get. And public agencies are not well-funded or staffed often to be able to answer these questions for themselves. So this presents a substantial risk to accountability and good governance. Uh, and that's one of the things that I, I hope we can get into. Uh, so uh, the big question here, who is responsible for answering these questions? That is, who is responsible for ensuring that public sector use of AI in Scotland is scientifically legitimate, safely and reliably implemented? ethically deployed and accountable to the public and to those at risk. Uh, I'll just say a few more things about this. Um, in the UK, we do have robust legal frameworks for data protection, intellectual property and copyright and information governance, which is great, but these often get conflated with the ethical requirements. So I have repeatedly had people working for public agencies and other actors tell me that because they're legally compliant, with these frameworks, they think they're in the clear ethically, and this is manifestly false. So ethics enters gaps often where legal accountability is or is seen by publics to be porous or weak or incomplete. And because of how fast these technologies are moving, almost all use cases in the public sector have sizable gaps of this kind. That is the legal accountability frameworks are not adequate. And so the ethical expectations flow in very quickly. They flow in from professional societies who might advocate for certain kinds of constraints. They come in from organized advo advocacy groups and activists in civil society. They come in from critical media and journalistic investigation. Uh, they come in from spontaneous public concern, often that gets amplified on social media with all of the mess that that entails and internal whistleblowers uh, who uh, become uncomfortable uh, with the ways tools are being deployed in their, in their agencies. Okay, so how do we address these gaps uh, and uh, build public trust in the way that these technologies in the public sector? Uh, first of all, I think it's important to understand what trust requires. It requires the security that citizens have that's provided by accountability for power, particularly where that power endangers specific vulnerabilities and interests. You think about accountability, it can go backwards. That's a situation where someone is asking whether the person or agency who deployed this power will answer for an unjust harm that that power did to somebody or their community, right? So that's sort of looking back at a harm and saying, who's gonna answer for this? There's also, however, prospective or forward-looking accountability. 
asking who has accepted and undertaken the necessary duties of care to protect my legitimate interests in this context. So this involves a situation where the technology hasn't been deployed yet, but is going to be, or it's been deployed, but we don't yet know what its effects will be and on whom. And people want to know who actually is accountable if something goes wrong. And then there's character accountability. And that's where we talk about whether the person or the agency involved has so far been trustworthy uh, with, with the person's or the community's interests in this context. And I'll say something more about this because you know, Scotland has some particular strengths here, um, but that means that it's all the more important uh, that, that Scotland not fall behind and in fact lead on accountable governance of these technologies. Now, where there is a trust gap, there are three ways to restore that or bridge that gap. One is hard constraints, local or global prohibition of this particular power or restriction of it from acting in certain domains and conditions. Think about what Microsoft just did, right? They're in the private domain using this method and they're basically saying, we can't bridge this gap any other way, so we're just not gonna let this product be used. There's also robust duties where instead of stopping the technology from being deployed, you create duties of care that allow it to be deployed safely, reliably, accountably. So you allocate specific and appropriate duties to particular persons or roles, and then you align those with parallel liabilities for negligence, and you make sure those are executed by reliable mechanisms. We have a lot of experience doing this in other domains, right? This is, this is just sort of good governance 101. And then, of course, in some cases, we need strict liability for harm, where irrespective of the performance of duties of care, you say that certain undue harms will be answerable by specific and appropriate sanctions of the responsibilized party. So these are the tools in the toolkit. What do we need to direct them towards? And I'll wrap up here in just a moment. Uh, some ethical risks and vulnerabilities for AI that uh, I would encourage you to think about. Uh, the unpredictability or brittleness of the performance of AI systems. That is, they work really well until they don't. And sometimes it's hard to predict when that shift happens. Uh, unjust bias. Many of you will be very familiar with this. It's been in the media a lot. The fact that AI and particularly machine learning applications tend to inherit systematic bias in historical data. Bias can also come in through inappropriate design decisions, which may not be intentional, but nevertheless can do harm to vulnerable populations. I'm sure many of you are also familiar with the worry about the opacity of AI or machine learning decisions, right? The whole black box problem. Uh, that might be because the systems are proprietary or it might be that they're inherently difficult to interpret or hard to audit. Also, these tools are being uh, deployed at speed scales and uh, distributed in ways that uh, can impede what we call meaningful human control, uh, where the system is moving too fast or is too complex for a human in the loop, as we say, to effectively uh, give oversight. And this can also de-skill human supervisors of the technology who might succumb to automation bias. Basically, they say, I can't overrule the computer. Uh, it's too complicated. It's too, uh, it's too powerful. It, it must know what it's doing. Uh, and then, of course, the distinctive vulnerabilities of groups that are being targeted for public sector use cases, uh, whose autonomy, dignity, rights, and well-being might be disregarded either in order to attain key efficiencies or to satisfy political aims. Uh, so I'll end by talking about the barriers and then the opportunities, the good things that can be done. Urged. Barriers are under-resourced public agencies that cannot afford the expertise or the staff time to identify these risks or manage them appropriately. 
The second, and this has been demonstrated by a number of studies of uh, deployments that have that have gone wrong in the United States and else, elsewhere, uh, you have problems of optimism bias, uh, where you have cultures of what I call see no evil, speak no evil, that count solely on legal compliance plus noble ambitions, and where speaking up and raising a worry or a red flag or saying, hey, I'm not sure this is going to work, uh, gets people uh, sanctioned or ignored or not promoted. And that kind of creates a culture where uh, risks grow unremarked upon and unaddressed. Techno-solutionist imperatives, uh, that's a, a word that philosophers use to talk about the uh, attempts to apply technology where it's not needed or fit for purpose, displacing more robust solutions. So not everything needs AI attached to it. And you need good reasons to choose AI as your mode of solving a particular governance problem or, or, or public challenge. Uh, there's also uh, the broad uh, problem in the public sector of lack of technical skills and AI that are needed to craft appropriate robust models and safeguards. And that makes public agencies vulnerable to exploitation by third party providers that might not know what they're doing or might not care what they're doing. Um, so knowing who you can trust in the AI ecosystem to develop and help you deploy a product in the public sector is a, is a big issue. And then, of course, there's fears of overregulation, uh, which can stifle innovation and adoption. But of course, I will point out that failure to appropriately regulate or govern these technologies will also stifle innovation and adoption in the long run because people will be scared to use it. And then inadequate channels for identifying, reporting and contesting harms. The opportunities, however, are substantial. There are growing resources in the UK to guide public sector agencies. Uh, Alan Turing Institute, Ada Lovelace Institute, CDEI, lots of investment is going into producing the knowledge needed uh, to help public se sector agencies bridge these gaps. There are also new training pipelines that will eventually increase the availability of AI and machine learning ethics expertise that can be employed or seconded by public agencies. There's also the fact that Scotland has a strong commitment to responsible AI already and a strong AI strategy that incorporates this in its core. And that allows Scotland to learn lessons now from public uses of AI and machine learning elsewhere that were less careful and less fortuitous in their outcomes. And then Scotland's advantage in public trust, which I mentioned earlier, makes the responsible AI work here more likely to land if it's followed by the actions needed to match the words. And devolved agencies can create new cultures of accountability and care and deployments that provide a sound model for others to follow. So that's where I'll end and look forward to the conversation. Well, look, I'm sure you'll agree with me to very thought provoking presentations that uh, raised a whole lot of questions for us, which um, I, you know, I, I, we just simply are not going to have the time to address properly. And this, I think, might be the start of a conversation that we want to have about some of these big questions that both of you have raised. But um, I think we've packed quite a lot in. And uh, when I spoke to Shannon and Ram uh, as they came in, they said this was the first time they've been in Parliament. And I think it's fair to say uh, it won't be the last because the uh, the questions you are raising for us to consider are really profound and uh, permeate lots of decisions that we are currently making as well as future decisions uh, that we that we will be making. So uh, can I thank the, both of you for taking the time out to come in and uh, speak with us today and to give us the benefit of your experience and both the technical and the philosophical underpinnings of the work that you do. So. So, um, but thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, I'll see you all around soon. And again, thanks to Ram and to Shannon for coming in and sharing their uh, knowledge and uh, the work that you're doing. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you very much.
Thank Thanks you. for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you.